Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Trogano, joined always by Stephen Canastrisi. Hello. This is episode 32, and today we're speaking with Dr. Joanna Ross Hersey. Dr. Hersey is a soloist, freelance artist, composer, teacher, and writer. She's currently the professor of tuba and euphonium at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Um, she's the president of the International Women's Brass Conference, IWBC, and she's also the, the secretary of the Historic Brass Society. Dr. Hersey is also the founder of the Athena Brass Band and a former tutist, <laughs> and is also a former tubist with the United States Coast Guard Band. This was an awesome conversation. A variety of topics have been covered, ranging from uh, family brass bands in the 19th century all the way to inclusion of gender studies and women in the field of brass music in the 21st century. So a really cool range, and we really think you're going to enjoy this episode. Yeah, definitely. A wide-ranging conversation, and she's just so uh, you know, friendly and open and willing to give us so much of her time <laughs> to, to have this conversation today. So we're really grateful that she came on the podcast and we will have uh, links to everything that she's involved in. Uh, Chris rattled off the, the whole list there, but we'll have links to all of those organizations and, and things up on our website um, where we also have a bunch of resources for you. Um, and if you like the show and value the resources that we uh, are putting together, you can support us on Patreon and Teespring. Uh, and also follow us on all social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel where we uh, put out not only the episodes but also some exclusive clips that don't make it into the full episode but that can stand alone on their own uh, along with some some other goodies up there on our YouTube page. So we do hope that you'll check all of that out uh, if you feel so inclined. Without further ado, here is episode 32 featuring Dr. Joanna Hersey. Thank you so much to Dr. Joanna Hersey for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, it's so great to be here, you two. Thank you for having me. Of course. Of course, of course. So we normally uh, you know, start these conversations with a little bit of the background of each of our guests. So can you maybe give us a little bit of your musical upbringing and kind of what brought you uh, to where we are today? Yes. Well, where we are today is that I'm in North Carolina. I'm coming at you from the University of North Carolina at Pembroke, which is where I'm professor of tuba and euphonium. And before that, though, I had a second life as a military band player. So I played principal tuba in the United States Coast Guard Band, which is stationed in New London, Connecticut. So after my time in the Coast Guard Band, I went back to school and switched gears to become a college professor. And Prior to the Coast Guard Band, I studied with Dan Parentoni at Arizona State. So back in the day, <laughs> I am a proud member of that studio. And it was such a wonderful place, an inspirational place. And I really credit that for a lot of what happened afterwards, this, this space. And we hope to always create that as university professors, this space where it's tough and real. But we also have growth and and we can be supportive while still criticizing in a helpful way. 
So mm-hmm. I, I had that. Luckily, not everybody does. So before my time at Arizona State, I was a little country girl from Vermont. I grew up in a town of 280 people mm-hmm. in East Haven, Vermont, right near the Canadian border. It's a beautiful place. There's a lot of logging. Some some paper companies own a lot of that land up there. Christmas mm-hmm. tree farms, maple syrup, the whole thing. Nice. And I went to a one-room schoolhouse, even though, of course, I'm you know not very old. But even I went to a one-room schoolhouse. These towns in Vermont are, they're not all that far apart as the crow flies, but of course there's mountains. So I think that too, one of the things that helped me greatly was the the schools, the one room schoolhouses are, are very creative. You don't have to stay so locked in your grade. You, if you read better, you can just go sit across the room with the eighth graders when they're doing their reading Mm -hmm. lesson instead of your sixth grade. So it, it, it really does work very well, these one room schoolhouses. And so I had an unusual education and I have always been very grateful to that East Haven, Vermont. I'm always proud to be from there. (laughs) And so I left East Haven and went to Arizona, which was a major change. So another thing that we talk about a lot in when we talk about musicians, we're going to talk about brass playing today, of course, and, and this sense of travel and adventure and being okay with brand new changes. That's, that's a feature, I think, of a lot of our careers that we took risk and we moved far because you know, there's not a big brass band scene in East Haven, Vermont. <laughs> Although we have a proud band tradition, the Lindenville Town Band had me play in tuba for several years. Awesome. So I, I think that my story and many of yours, that of um, those listening, it features a, a lovely risk, a packing of a suitcase, and then going off. And, and my life has certainly been like that from Vermont to Arizona to Connecticut and now to North Carolina. That's awesome. Yeah. It kind of seems like uh, when you were talking about it, moving around within the one room schoolhouse kind of the the comparison that was being brought to my mind is when as musicians we're always kind of encouraged to play up in our ability level like always surround yourself with musicians that are better than yourselves and they kind of help lift you up a little bit it kind of seems like uh maybe that's a, a musical similarity to that type of one room schoolhouse situation <laughs> definitely i think we feel like in the arts that that we really are you know able to blend and mix with any group of people. We are, we are believers in this sense that it brings us together. And so that sense of moving isn't as scary maybe for us that, that we know we'll find like-minded people there. Mm-hmm. Those of us that have done it, we can say, yes, that's what happens. You can walk <laughs> into any room anywhere and you can start talking about brass instruments and, you know, it, it's, you know, you can work with conductors who don't speak your language at all. Some of us have done that, right? Had a rehearsal mm-hmm. without a translator and had beautiful music making. This is this is a feature of our field that's really wonderful. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. Sure. Yeah. So then after your time with uh, Mr. Parentoni and, and continuing with your professional career, uh, I know that you've achieved the, the status level of doctor in the, in <laughs> yes. the field of music. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, your your higher education experience in terms of uh, uh, your research and, and kind of what got you into uh, that field and that research topic that you wanted to dive into a little bit? Definitely. And I think it's a good story because the whole thing centers on me not getting what I wanted. <laughs> That happens all the time, right? Here we are in a (laughs) pandemic. So none of us are getting what we want right now. So I'm going to tell this story, which actually starts with when I joined the Coast Guard Band. So when I joined the Coast Guard Band, I was lucky enough to have won that job young. I was 19 when I won that job. So of course, I was only in my sophomore year at Arizona State. And 
a whole crew of us went to the audition. I did just expect that I would be there with the others who won. (laughs) Kind of, you know, my first one. And and so so winning that messed up what I had thought would happen, which was get a degree with Parentoni. So Mm-hmm. I left school and, of course, joined the Coast Guard, and I'm, I'm living in Connecticut. But I knew that I wanted to finish, and Parentoni was wonderful. He really mentored, and he said, you know, you've got to keep studying. It was only, you know, I'm so young still. He said, go take lessons. Toby Hanks is there. You know, there's lots of great players in the area. And so I knew that I wanted to finish school. So the story really starts with me trying to take some classes at the local place, which would have been University of Connecticut. So, right, Yukon Huskies, just up the road from New London, Connecticut. And I went up to the music department and I enrolled and I took a couple of things, but it became apparent that I wasn't going to be able to finish the degree in music because, of course, I was active duty Coast Guard and I was all day, you know, mm-hmm. I could slip away for maybe a 3.30 class, perhaps. Right. But it wasn't really sustainable. That's not a large department. Music theory was at 9 a.m., you know, those gotcha. sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there, there came a meeting where I went into the chair and I was at the end of what I could take. And I said, you know, could I perhaps do some kind of independent study? Or, you know, they said, well, you could take a grad class and if you can pass that. So I took a grad class and passed that. And they so but there came the end and he said he looked across the desk and he said to me, I'm sorry, we can't help you. Hmm. You can't get a music degree. Yeah. Well. And I look back and I think you know, my bio has gone all over the world and you would think that like they would want, but, but from an admin standpoint, it was too much trouble. So I remember this is one of those moments, right? We look back and we have those moments of despair. And so I walked out to the parking lot and this, you guys, this is, I don't even know, 25 years ago now. Mm -hmm. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I was standing in the parking lot and I was so sad. Like, how am I going to get my degree? I realized this is important. And I was holding, because back in the day, you had a paper course schedule. (laughs) So in the old days, everyone, right? you had a paper catalog that you looked through to see the class offerings by major. So I was standing in the parking lot in Connecticut with with this course catalog that I had been holding to try to show him, you know, what I was going to take. And I looked down at it. And on the back, there was no back cover. On the back were all these classes and every single one of them met at 7 p.m the entire page of classes met from 7 to 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I discovered that what I was looking at was the women's studies. The women's studies majors at that point, this is the 90s, were sort of an auxiliary. So you might teach sociology during the day, right? And then you teach the women in sociology course at night. It was sort of a side thing. We usually Mm -hmm. call this gender studies today. Mm-hmm. In a women's studies degree, you, of course, would study all the genders. But so now we usually use the term gender studies. So here's UConn in the 90s with a healthy women's studies degree where every single class meets from 7 to 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. So I started walking over to that building <laughs> and changed my life along the way. So I went in and it was interesting because I had just had this you know, if we're going to be honest, this really awful meeting with this old white man who didn't respect me in any way. This was how I felt. Mm-hmm. And I walked into this other building. You know, I just randomly walked in, no appointment. And this wonderful lady came out from behind her desk. Oh, come right in. She told me about the major. I said, you know, I'm I'm in this, you know, mix. I have to tour. I'm, I'm you know. And she said, we would love to have you. You'd be most welcome. It's, it would be wonderful to have a, a military woman. And we, we'd really love to have your experience in our in our circle. And, and she said all the things that perhaps maybe could have been said in the other building, but weren't. And then she signed me up for the major. So I have a women's studies bachelor's degree. That's mm-hmm. not what was the plan. And in that degree, I learned from you take classes and I know we, this is, these, these degrees are often ridiculed, right? But just think of what it actually is, is a bunch of women who are either going into sociology or pre-law. 
So mm. my entire cohort was pre-law in, in sociology. These women were studying economics, political science. They were studying business and they were studying history and race and all of those just through the lens of race and gender. Hmm. And so this was all by accident. I should have thought instantly about this. I you know, didn't even occur to me. And and so now I was there as a young military tuba player, sitting in class about political science and the history of race and economics and the history of steel mills and women in the military and all of this religion. And I did all my projects on music. You know, when I could do a paper. Mm-hmm. Right. And I graduated with with the women's studies degree and I did an internship. That's part of it with all these women who were going on into law. And then I did the master's and the doctorate after that in the normal tuba performance realm. But I was mm-hmm. forever changed. Mm. So yeah, yeah. that's sort of the long story. And so then I did the master's and the doctorate. And when I got to the doctorate, I knew again, it was in tuba performance. My doctorate's from the Hart School. And they do a serious document there. A lot of times we sometimes feel that, you know, a couple lecture recitals and a little paper <laughs> will do it. But, but Hart's <laughs> hardcore and and they wanted a hundred page document they wanted a real you know i had a music historian as my dissertation coach who who was you know he looked at me i remember that meeting too i was kind of hoping you know 50 pages and you know joanna we're gonna write a real thing here and of course you you look back and you're grateful because i've been Mm -hmm. able to publish great parts of that right over the time yeah yeah, of course and now that i'm a college teacher one of our our aspects of being a professor is we have to show this published scholarship and i can make all the cds Mm -hmm. under the sun but the committee at my university doesn't you know, they assume you're going to make CDs. It's not, it's yeah, not, true. that's not, a, they don't understand, right? They think it's, it must be easy. And so, so, but they know an article review, that's something. Oh, there you go. You yeah, know, right. Like yeah. Having, you know, having a peer reviewed journal article. So, so my, you know, my dissertation work, I, I said, you know, I want to write on women tuba players because, again, this is still in the early 2000s. So my, my dissertation published in 2006. So I was writing it for mm-hmm. the previous four years, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they told me I couldn't write on women tuba players. This is now becoming standard. I get emails quite a lot with somebody saying, you know, I'm writing my doctoral dissertation on women euphonium players. I just got one from UNT about that. And, you know, they mm-hmm. want to interview it. And, and, and there's there's some on women trombone. And so these brass instruments from a lens of, of gender. And that's not just going to be a list of women who play the trombone, right? It's going to be a mm-hmm. whole document. When you write a dissertation, on something that's been left out of history, which is why we're here today chatting, right? Right. Sometimes we feel it it happened, but it's not talked about in the way we want. So a dissertation would would just kind of try to reset, right? If you're going to write about women in the tuba, you're, you're going to talk about the society at the time. You're going to talk about what we're talking about today, bands, orchestras, soloists. You're going to talk about the, the rules and how society shifts, things like immigration. And you're going to talk about wartime. You're going to talk about all those things. So it's silly to say that some poor young girl couldn't write about women in the tuba if she wanted, but they denied that topic. And so what I ended up with, they, they, and the argument was, there aren't any resources. She won't be able mm. to do it. Gotcha. And of course, there's tons, but right, that's that yeah, myth yeah, yeah. that, well, right. you know, they were barely there. What could, what, it's just, we're going to talk about storytelling and who tells the stories today. Mm. But it's just that the stories that you're reading aren't the ones where they were popular. <laughs> so right. there are stories and there's storytelling, but you just didn't know, right? So, 
So anyway, so so my compromise was let's do all brass women. So my dissertation is on women playing brass in the U.S. from about 1880 to 1940. So when the heyday of women's bands and orchestras in the U.S. begins, so we really start to see documentation. We can point to oh, there's the Boston Fidette Orchestra. We can we can point to this right. Brass playing really becomes obvious. Mm-hmm. We can point to that from around the 1880s on, and then by World War II, we have a lot of documentation starting because of the war effort, it made sense to begin to document women's contributions just for mm-hmm. a little while anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, <Thanks>. so go <laughs> ladies for four years. <laughs> so, so there's a lot. So you don't necessarily need lots of writing about that World War II era. It's, it's, there's, there are several books, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what we really were missing though, was the story of, you know, women in vaudeville or, or women as soloists and brass in the flapper era, let's say. So, mm-hmm. so, so my dissertation has a start. It talks about why this is important as most dissertations do a review of the current literature and why, you know, why we, we must tell this story, some examples of the attitudes that we think there weren't any, right? right. That if I knew that there were tuba yeah, yeah. women playing tuba throughout the last 150 years in the U.S., including in the city I got my degree in, I might feel a little stronger, right? I wouldn't feel yeah, like I yeah. had to pay. I, I would know that I was just one in a long line and it would give me strength. Mm-hmm. Of course. So that's, you know, right? That's why we're here today. That's why your right. podcast exists is to share this history and to showcase the history of all. So I, my first chapter talks about that. And then it goes through women in three areas, large ensembles, so band and orchestra, then as soloists. And that's not as much tuba euphonium, but certainly lots, lots of examples um, of the high brass and then a couple low brass examples and then chamber music in the vaudeville era. So there's a lot of vaudeville discussion. And then we sort of have a wrap up of where we're going next. And my dissertation is on my website. It's a PDF. You can grab it. And that's 2006. So, you know, it's it's a little bit ago now. And <laughs> yes, some things have changed, but I would say not enough. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So so it makes sense why uh, with your time frame that you chose, you, you went into why the 1940s was kind of the end point um, but we do know that brass history existed prior to 1880 and was probably or is was equally not uh, well documented for exactly. female brass players at the time. Why, why was 1880 kind of your starting point for that when there was X amount of years previous to that that might have uh, been able to be included as well? Yeah, that's a good question. And part of it is the answer is we we just started in 1880 and we got the hundred pages. <laughs> so, so there's <laughs> oh, that. There you go. So, but partly too, let's, let's think about the U S if we think about the United States and there are development as creating a music scene, our universities and our music conservatories are really up and running in the 1860s. We begin them. So Oberlin, for example, is taking students of color as well as women in the 1860s. Then we have Cincinnati, Boston, NEC. They're starting, you know, by the late 1860s, those conservatories are all open, running and taking women. And so it takes a little while for that to filter through. So we're, mm-hmm. you know, as we might talk about that coming up here in our conversation. So I feel like we certainly do have collegiate history with some of the earlier universities, but it really it takes the brass bands and the the Civil War bands to really get brass into the U.S. proper, I would say, right, as as a widespread thing. And then also remember, the U, the 19th century had a cool thing happen, and that really affected women, and that was the Industrial Revolution. So we were a farming economy at the start of it, and we were an industrial economy <laughs> shifting to an industrial economy in 1900. So these mm-hmm. 1800s, right, people go out and make actual coin. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Right? And so 
life in the in the 19th century changed a huge amount. And I think that if you're talking about the story of women, the real value is, is certainly you could do an entire dissertation on 1800 to 1820. There's tons mm -hmm. there, right? But but I think that maybe starting with what was the result of all that change? 1880 forward. And so that's what we were thinking about. And of course, the next stage is to go backwards because one of the things we discover is that it's easy to think, all right, I don't know about all this women's band activity, so it must not have been very much. But mm. when you research, you actually find out there's tons. And so then you have to ask, how come if there's tons, we don't know about it? And so, yeah. you know, the, the first stage we all felt like, especially in the 80s and 90s, like in, in the 80s, I think there was something like four different books published on the history of women in jazz. There's just like, some of them are just mm. dictionaries by alphabetical by last name, Percy, <laughs> Comma, yeah. Joanna, blah, 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 blah. Like, here are the names, people, they were there, you know. And, but, but actually, it kind of doesn't, like it, I was going to say, it doesn't help. It helps, but it doesn't change the reason why they weren't there in the first place. The, that's right. the discourse. So... So when you're talking about like, so my dissertation is trying to show, oh, hey, hey, we were there, like, here's a photo, yay. And and that's great. But really, the, the bigger question is, why aren't they in the stuff, the stories that, you know, the other side yeah. is reading? Why aren't they mm -hmm. throughout? And those are larger questions. Mm -hmm. And that that is, so it's it's nice to look at and, and show photos and say, you know, I'm going to tell you today about the Boston Fidette Lady Orchestra. And that's great. But we also want to have the larger conversation. And I know that now we're aware. We're aware now after last year, the Black Lives Matter movement, what people who didn't understand are now more aware that this isn't only about filling in the names of the people who were there. It's about asking the questions about why they're not there and why we continue to publish and showcase, you know, whole categories of panel people or whole guest artist rosters or, you know, whole conference committees that are all one type of group. Mm -hmm. So we're still not totally getting that message that it's the system that's set up in a certain way. And so, you know, we certainly do need to showcase more names. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course. Right. A big theme of uh, Stephen and I's work with this podcast is is bringing the point forward that the American brass band movement in the golden age of bands is generally overlooked as movements in college history teaching. Um mm -hmm. Yes. Obviously, you know, this is more speaking to the audience. All three of us know this here, but that uh, the college music history curriculum largely follows the Western European orchestral tradition. And then if there's talk of American music, you know, it goes into maybe some select art songs, maybe jazz, maybe John Philip Sousa, but, you know, largely is following the orchestral and then classical piano, you know, 20th century um, avant-garde type of music and stuff. Right. Um since since these two movements are largely overlooked, and now that thanks to your work and other dissertations are bringing to light this uh, area of history of American uh, women in American music in this early period, do you think that as these periods are talked about and taught more, that the women uh, and the female involvement in those eras are to be taught uh What's the word? Congruently together, or do you think that there still needs to be kind of the the isolated topics of, you know, this was the movement, and then even more so focusing specifically on the women contribution within that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that what we do have now 
is we have this idea that we teach the canon and then we try to stick in when we can diversity. And so you'll have this photo of, you know, Hildegard von Bingen in the history book. And then the next photo will be Clara Schumann. <laughs> and then after that, you know, that, that's, I don't know what you might have, Nadia Boulanger, I don't know. So you, you, you run into trouble because there's a, a fear that this, I'm going to use the word canon, right? This, this university, and again, now I'm going to speak from a, a group that I'm inside of. So we can be critical, right? We can be critical when we're inside the group and, and it's okay for me to criticize the college music curriculum, for example. And you guys are products mm -hmm. of it too. I'm a product of it. I choose to be inside it. I would like to protest from inside it. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I don't mind, you know, if somebody might say, you know, well, you're participating in that, but not, you know, not in my class, <laughs> not yeah, in yeah. my courses. But right. but so what happens is that from from a collegiate perspective, change is is really hard for some. They feel that to get let's say that you're gonna cut out two hours of your lecture in the Baroque era to talk about other, you know, other um, things instead. You might talk about the development of colonialism and how that's going to affect, right, in your music history class. And then you might bring in the Chevalier de Saint-Georges and talk about musicians of color. And you could have a whole unit on that. And then the professor might say to me, yeah, but I was going to do Vivaldi that week. The students have to know about Vivaldi, they would say, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's the problem is that there is a sense that it has to be one or the other. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know what? How about we do a little less Vivaldi and we compare the Vivaldi to the Chevalier de Saint-Georges that's going to come along 20, you know, 20 years later or 30 years later. And when you teach the four Mozart operas, let's just teach two. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Or even, I mean, I'm not, you know. So it's not radical. It's, it's but it isn't what's in the textbooks, is it? True. And right, exactly. we've been taught that what the textbooks say is the is the the rule. And we've also been taught that while the so so okay, so this this is another main point. We've we've been taught through what we're shown that the things that we see are the real stuff and the others are auxiliary. Hmm. And that's one of the things that can be so helpful about our band discussion, because the brass band world has already broken one of those big barriers. We're going to talk a little bit more perhaps today about this big distinction people like to make between professional and amateur. There are lots of people of color and women in the professional realm throughout history. However, it's a sense people have that they must have just been amateur housewives, like maybe, right? And that the people of color would have been doing it on the side of their day jobs as laborers, let's mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. And so when people talk, somebody will say, well, that that's fine, but that wasn't professional activity, right? So yeah. in the brass band world, though, let's say, let's I believe this to be true, that we are already kind of present to this idea that there is great joy and importance in amateur music making on the brass band scene. And we, as we spoke, as Americans, our our civil war, our, our war which brought the brass instruments in and, you know, our brass, ins, brass ensembles as they were founded and as they were used in the war and as they were left around afterwards, right, to, to hang out in places like New Orleans and, and develop those beautiful styles. These instruments were spread across out into our um, expansion into the westward area of our country. And, and so our brass band ideology shares this sense that it's okay not to be professional. Sometimes people say, well, we don't have to have the women's bands in the history books because they weren't in the union. 
well, yeah, the union didn't let them in, people. The mm. union was forced to let them in in 19... Women could not belong to the Musicians' Union until 1904, and that was only because the federal law, the Musicians' Union didn't actually want to accept them. They were forced to because yeah. the American Federation of Labor passed a law that you had to have women in. So you can't say that they're not in the history because they weren't in the union and then not let them in the union, right? Yeah, so yeah. We have examples <laughs> of this kind of thing throughout. So this idea of... We, we, we would say, like, back to the collegiate curriculum right back to that you know some some of the arguments are well they weren't professionals and we want to teach our students about the highest level of art making well that's wrong we don't want to teach our students that at all mm -hmm. and and so when we change this idea of what do we want to teach our students right i'm going to be teachery and i'm going to say we have course learning outcomes the learning outcomes should be stuff like discuss music you know as layers of sound which correlate to the activities of the human voice throughout history that's a learning outcome another learning outcome is to appreciate and articulate with respect the cultural you know uh, the cultural um, offerings of all people and to recognize no hierarchy and any kind of um, layering in the value of music making and all all art activity as equally valid those are the learning outcomes that you should have those aren't mm -hmm. the learning outcomes <laughs> <laughs> many, many, um, you know, are, are working with. And, and so when we talk about, we are in charge of this. You and I and everybody who's a teacher, we're in charge of the curriculum. You can refuse that textbook. You can go to the faculty meeting and make a stink. However, and then we're coming now to kind of the topic of protest. It's a little hard to rock the boat. So we might say, why aren't, why aren't everybody standing up and refusing to teach this hierarchy? They're scared to because they might lose their job and they really might. Yeah, yeah, true. And so it takes, that's, you know, sometimes we say, you know, university tenure should be abolished and you got all these old people who are teaching the canon sitting in a chair and, you know, not doing mm -hmm. anything to help us. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm an old tenured faculty now. I'm sitting <laughs> in that chair. I'm going to, I'm going to stand up. So, so we shouldn't ask our academic people who are at risk, the adjuncts, let's say, or the, or the people of color who are overwhelmed with requests to pretend everything's fine with race. You know, we, we shouldn't ask these people to then go out on a limb in a faculty meeting and protest the textbook choice. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it's up to people like me who are safely tenured and I, I won't lose income if I criticize. I, or, or I don't mind the income loss <laughs> <laughs> I might, or let's change that. I, I, I might lose income, but I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but you know what? That phrase that I just said, that's real privilege right there. I am privileged to have been in a tenured job. I'm 14 years into a collegiate salary. My student loans are paid off. I'm very lucky. I have a platform and I'm very privileged and I can go into my chair and I can say this textbook is rubbish. I teach music appreciation with no textbook <laughs> because I don't like it. No yeah, offense yeah. to all. I'm sure there's ones that are trying to be better, but publishing takes a while. You know that. Plus, it's $80. And I'm sorry, but I have a lot of students for whom they're just not going to buy it. That's just not possible yeah, for them. Mm -hmm. And right. so, so you know, this is, this is when you know, to bring us back to American brass bands and why we don't necessarily see them more in the collegiate studios. I think that this is because if it's not in the music history class, it doesn't seem like the tuba professor ought to bring it up or or maybe it doesn't occur to the yeah. tuba professor to bring it up. And so when we have something like the IWBC or your podcast or, or resources like this, you know, Richard White's film about, about his life, things that showcase other stories, we as studio teachers, as teachers of music appreciation and music history, all of us who are involved with college students in any way, it is up to us to add and 
and create a new canon. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. There's enough out there about like Vivaldi and Bach that we yes. can we can do with a little less. Like not every fugue we look at in theory has to be a Bach fugue. <laughs> and I truly, you know, I am not saying because like I took a class, right? This is so example of canon. I was at NEC, which I loved. NEC is a wonderful place. And I took an entire class on Bach. The entire three credit class at the grad level. And you know what? We basically listened to everything. And they would pass, there was like 10 of us. He would pass out a score and we'd just listen and he would talk. And it was the most amazing thing ever. And I loved that class. And I still think back to how wonderful it was. You're stressed out. You're trying to learn the John Williams stupid concerto. Ah, you, know? <laughs> you know, and you're going to audition and starve to death because you can't get a job, right? So there's the, <laughs> but then you walk in and you shut the door and you're in this classroom in this space of growth and discovery and box amazing. So I am not about to say, me with all my women's studies feminism, I am not about to say we shouldn't look at a Bach fugue once in a while. But we also need to look at the other things. And it's not enough to just think that, well, Bach represents, you know, no. So so don't feel like we're saying, get rid of that. Just cut mm -hmm. back on it a little. And then, like we said, do a unit on colonialism and let's talk about the slave trade and let's talk about how that erased and brought change and how religion shifted because that is the story of music. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Yeah. But then also the other thing is that there, the fact that there was even a course being offered devoted just to Bach and then you know what what other you know composers or you know we're, that type of thing are, are are even offered you know given that option to, to talk about at that length you know and that's such an elitist thing that that you know there would be this sense that that you have a place which very few people are allowed to go a music conservatory right? <laughs> and then you <laughs> You don't let very many people in. And then when you get inside that, you know, the, the one building, you get in there and then you go in these little tiny groups and you shut the door and you study one white man for, you know, four months. No, and I'm, I'm not saying that that course wasn't valuable. I'm an educator and I think that I got a lot out of that course. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only thing we should teach. That's really the message, right? It's not yeah, yeah, just that. That is very important. I also took a whole entire semester on Charles Ives, and I got a ton out of that too, right? Because Charles Ives was a protester. He was a dissenter, and we <laughs> love that. He yeah. wrote stuff that they didn't like. Yeah, that was yeah. awesome. And, and yes, he's a white man, but I think that's a little closer because that's a story about risk, and it's 20th century, so you could bring in all kinds of stuff about the band movement and what it said that Charles Ives was writing atonal stuff and how we're going to throw out the hierarchy of tone. I love that part. So yeah, that yeah. you could do a ton with a Charles Ives course. <laughs> so something like your podcast, this, you know, this discussion, people are listening, thinking, all right, when are they going to talk about band? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're talking about Charles, that this is band, the band topic, this world of instrumental. You know, I have spent my life playing tuba hours every day through this whole pandemic. I'm still playing scales, you all. I'm going to get to long tones here in a bit. Yeah. We are instrumentalists <laughs> and we are playing in bands. That's what I've done with my whole life. And this conversation is all, it all blends together. What do we do? How do we talk about it? What is it to be a band person? Going back to the work that you uh, did in your dissertation, uh, we already talked about the time frame and uh, kind of the scope that you had for that document. Uh, I was interested, unless Stephen, unless you had something that you wanted to steer us in a different direction with, but I was kind of curious uh, in that document, in your dissertation, uh, maybe some of the, the major discoveries or major themes that maybe you discovered while writing that document? Some of the discoveries and, and then some of our individuals that we can, we can really point to. So one of the discoveries for me was that I, being young, I went into it thinking, like we've said, that there wouldn't be that many. Sherry Tucker, in her wonderful writing of jazz, she says, there were hundreds of women's bands. 
And she says, whenever I go and say that to people, they're like, well, you know, maybe there, there were a few dozen, but there surely weren't hundreds. There actually were hundreds. And when you go back and look, so I found I was researching in the city of Boston, too, because I was doing my master's at NEC and the Boston Public Library was an amazing source. So I actually went back up there during my doctorate to do some more research for the dissertation, which was, of course, at Hart in Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut. And so... So Boston Public Library has all kinds of resources about women's bands and orchestras. And I spent hours and it was wonderful. And there's scrapbooks. You know how scrapbooks used to be a thing, right? Those of us in band <laughs> research, we love a scrapbook. So I, I found all kinds of scrapbooks in the Boston Public Library about the Boston music scene in the late 1800s. And so one of the most amazing things to me was how much there was. And we've already talked about that. There's way more than we think. And so there was something called the Boston Fidette Lady Orchestra that started in around 1895 and then kept going all the way through until around 1920. And I'd never heard of them. So this is one of those things. They did more than 6,000 concerts in the course of that period, this turn of the century. This is the vaudeville era. So I was shocked at the numbers. Like if they played 6,000 concerts, think of all those audiences. That's not just like a blip. Like we, you know, we rightly revere Sousa as doing wonderful things for for sort of homogenizing what what a band sound might've been by just traveling all over everywhere and playing over and over and really getting us all on the same page with what band could be, right? And, <laughs> and showcasing with with the skill level of these musicians. And so it wasn't just Sousa, of course. So the Boston Fidets, that was an orchestra. One of the neat parts of this story that I learned was that it all started with the violin. So this, <laughs> the story of women and then later, you know, the branching out to, to more diversity, it often has to do with the violin because the violin was one of the first instruments that was they accepted young women into at the universities. So Boston University, mm-hmm. for example, had a violin teacher with a whole studio of women. And so one of the things that I learned was that at NEC, it was something like, I want to find it because I printed it out, right? In 1868, New England Conservatory, 1868, New England Conservatory had 1,097 female and 317 male students enrolled. Hmm. Now, that's partly because that was just in that Civil War era, too, right? Mm -hmm. Not true. Yeah, yeah. um, So, but 1,000 women were at NEC in 1868. And most of them were, of course, been on violin, right? That's sort of the Mm -hmm. first socially acceptable women's instrument. It's a little more gentle looking. Mm -hmm. And it's a higher sound. There's this sense with women that the, the gentler... And, and if you don't play it with your lips, that's another big thing. <laughs> so, you know, we, can, we can talk about that later. So, so the idea of what people accept first, right? So violin, harp, the piano, right? These were instruments that were early on. So we have thousands, literally, of women who can play violin super well. In the Boston scrapbooks, they're recital after recital at NEC in Boston Conservatory where these women are having these senior recitals and then going off. So there's all these women with violin. No. They couldn't. The Boston Symphony is founded in the 1880s ish. Boston Symphony Hall is built. They don't take women in there, right? <laughs> they aren't going to yeah. take women for another almost yeah. hundred years. Yeah, so, so these women started forming orchestras. So we have these women's orchestras forming, and there were tons of them. So the Boston Fidets is a women's orchestra. All these great classically trained, like they have the real degree and everything, right? They're quote unquote professionals, right? They they have their degree and they're p- performing in all these orchestras, and people loved it. So then we start to have things like Helen May Butler. Helen May Butler is a, she's very well researched and there are people who are experts on Helen May Butler and can come on and and chat with you. She was one of these that really saw the marketing potential. People sometimes called her. They love to do this. They say things like the female Sousa, or they'll say like in the (laughs) jazz era, 
anybody on drums was just called the female Krupa all the time. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> or one of them was like a Krupa in skirts. You know, they were just they don't know what to <laughs> gotcha. do. They don't know what they don't know what words to use. They don't have the language. So yeah, right. So so Helen May Butler is often what people talk about when they somebody says, "Can you talk about one of the first successful women in, in brass or in band?" And she had a band. There was another one. Um, Lori Ryder, Antoinette Ryder, who had the American Women's Grand Concert Band. And so they were two large, like 40, 50 piece bands where all women and they were concert bands and they were touring and they were very much in the public eye. They came onto the vaudeville circuit, right? So let's review vaudeville. It, it kind of means toast of the town. Sometimes we use the word variety show. And around mm -hmm. in the 1880s into the 1920s, when we start to get Hollywood, remember Hollywood's just like this, like one stoplight town up until yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. the early 20th yeah. century. Hollywood isn't a thing. So what was art? Art was this, Sousa, what we think, I mean, many of us are aware that Sousa toured on the train and you know did a lot of these stops. So vaudeville was a series of theaters that you went from one to the next and you went on these long tours. And travel, as we've said, is is one of those things that really, really is so fascinating about musicians and and all races, all genders. Vaudeville was very egalitarian. That's the second thing I would say is, is a big surprise when you research. And so because it's about what sells, thank mm. God for that, right? <laughs> so, so you have women, you have women of color, you have minority groups that are able to go out. Now, of course, society is totally segregated at this point, and they were not treated fairly. Were they paid the same? No. Were they treated with respect? Mm. No. The whole South is full of Jim Crow laws after the Civil War. It's not a nice scene at all. However, mm -hmm. we start to see, remember, we're, we're being told, well, if they weren't professional, they don't belong in the story. But these actually were, you know, people of color right. and women, they were touring. These bands were amazing. And so then they, we, let's let's say, you know, we've got all these orchestras and they go over and let's say we're switching into the 20th century. Now we've got all these instrumentalists. Then there was the women's orchestra, the Fidets stopped, but then they had like the Boston Women's Symphony Orchestra was founded and most of the Fidets just started playing over there. Gotcha. One of the next mm -hmm. surprises in my dissertation was that I could document because I went to the scrapbook. I could document five women playing tuba in the 1930s in Boston. Well, yeah. So I know they were there. And yeah. it's so mm -hmm. neat to think. And then, of course, we could talk all day about World War II, where there was a, another dozens of women playing tuba. They're there. Yeah. One, right. of, the, one of the things that happened to, to me over this pandemic time was that I, I had a conversation with a young woman who saw one of my posts for the Women's Brass Conference, right? Part of my my role in the Women's Brass Conference. I'm president, but I also like to really try to share the historical aspect. We have a, a history committee, the Pioneer Committee, it's called, and I mm -hmm. co-chair that with Susan Slaughter. And, and we really try to showcase the work of women of the past, right? And mm -hmm. so the the posts that I make on our women's breast social media are sometimes like a mentor Monday where we'll throw out a, a person <laughs> of the past, right? Yeah, you yeah. know, somebody like Connie Weldon on tuba or, or some something like Helen May Butler. And so these these women were there, we just don't know. And so as a response to one of my posts, I had a conversation with somebody who was real surprised, like, oh, I didn't know this. And she's in, you know, she she posted later, she nobody's researching these women. <laughs> and you know, her she made she made a Facebook post, you know, it kind of uh, understandable, right? But just because she hasn't been taught, because she's yeah. in the canon and the university where nobody and you might think, you guys, that girls who go to school on a brass instrument, you 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 
you might think they'd be taken aside at some point and, and told, don't worry, there's lots of examples of women too, but hang in there. Nobody says that to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you, I think we have this sense that people of color or women who feel a minority in the brass world today, that mu they surely must you know, be mm. told about these amazing mentors that they could use to get through the day. But they're not. And, and so this, this young woman posted, you know, nobody's researching these women. And I, I thought, you know, that was a bad day for me. <laughs> <laughs> who who made the post yeah. and, and i i i yes exactly the post that caused her to say that was from yeah, me. yeah yeah and, and, I, and so i i sent her a gentle email and i said you know let's respect women like susan slaughter who for 30 years has put out a twice yearly newsletter which is full of all the work of women brass players in the iwbc mm -hmm. and and that she gathered people together at you know for 30 years and and not only Susan but Sherry Tucker whose book I mentioned before who writes on jazz in the World War II era that book is a life-changing book it's um we'll put it in the show notes I have actually a book section of my website I have like a bookshelf what I'm reading nice. and so mm -hmm. Sherry Tucker's mm -hmm. book is on there and and several others that that I really feel are inspiring that you can use to help broaden it's okay if we don't know this stuff. Why would you know about the women's history of tuba? Like, for heaven's sakes, nobody's teaching it. In the, <laughs> like, don't feel bad. It's okay. You don't know. And and so that that young woman that you know she her sort of cry of despair. Nobody's researching this. You know, like there are actually <laughs> lots of things out there. But the fact that you don't know about it is the same as nobody researching it. Mm -hmm. So and yeah, you think so that if the I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You, I was just gonna say we research, uh, but but then we have to keep sharing because there's always new, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. You would think that the colleges and universities would want to teach these things to help bring up their students to help uh, lift them up, because then yes. wouldn't that help with enroll? That would help with enrollment then too, right? <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm I'm gonna say that it's tough being not what people expect. You know, whether, you know, and we're talking about bands, there's lots of women's bands and, you know, I'm in the Athena brass band and, and it, it's tough when you're not what people expect when you walk in the room for a gig and, and, you know, people look at you or, you know, like, aren't sure, you know, like, I can't tell you the look of surprise when I say I'm a Parentoni student. If somebody doesn't know who I am, that it's like a surprise and relief. Oh, she probably can play. Because there's this, remember I, I used the word housewife before, there's this sense of this amateur level that we're afraid of, that it, if you don't look like the norm, and so, yeah, so so we 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 want to create a, a an understanding that it's actually really painful to work in this field when you don't look, and I'm lucky because I'm 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 privileged in the race category. And I just have to be different in the one category, gender. And when you don't look like what people expect professionalism looks like, it's very painful and hard all the time. And if you look at our professionals who don't match the stereotype, you should know that they go through a lot. They, they get a lot of negative energy all the time. And one thing that we can do to help is we can really showcase that they are not the first. They are not alone. It's not even all that uncommon. One of the mm -hmm. sources that I find the most amazing is yearbooks. So from the band, so I'm doing a, a new book chapter now. And so let's talk about band research. How do you find this stuff? What do you do? <laughs> you want to help, right? Your, your brass bands or your wind ensembles, your concert and marching bands. School yearbooks are a wonderful resource. My university started out as a Native American normal school. The, the Lumbee <laughs> tribe of North Carolina is in Pembroke. And as you know, we're segregated. So the white universities were not accepting students of color. 
And so we have the historically brass, the, the historically black movement and the HBCUs, and we have Native American normal schools developing, such as mine, UNC Pembroke. And those yearbooks are a great place to go to see wonderful examples. So the wind ensemble, the, the little band in Pembroke, for example, mm -hmm. when the yearbook starts in the 40s, I have pictures in the yearbook of the band and, and there's girls in there and they're playing yes. brass. And it's <laughs> wonderful to see, again, it's not a new thing for women to play in band and women to play brass. It's just that we think it is. Mm -hmm. Right. For sure. Yeah. You were mentioning how uh, the, the, the turn into women's involvement in music uh, started kind of with piano, harp, and violin, and those sorts of things. Do we know or have any type of idea why or when the turn to brass started happening in the 1800s? Well, we know it was there. Like, interestingly, I looked, I wanted to check um, before our talk and the Boston Fidettes, there's a Wikipedia entry. And so, you you know, if you type that into Google, you'll see it actually did have a tuba player. The Wikipedia entry does not list there being a tuba player in the Boston Fidettes, but I know there was one, but it probably wasn't in the 1890s. But they do have brass by then. So this is an interesting question. I don't think women were majoring on trumpet at NEC in the 1860s. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. I didn't see that in any of the... You could you could do that. would be a great paper, right? So those of us listening who are writing our paper or an article, go up to Boston and look at the scrapbooks and find that out yeah yeah <laughs> however let's talk about one cool thing that we have in our band history our brass band history and that's the family band so the family band is a wonderful topic. You could do a whole podcast on it sometime in the future. The family band is exempt from the rules. It's the coolest thing. And you know what? It's because there's a dad. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. So there's a man in charge. So, so the family band is a big thing. People love it, right? You know, those of us that are brass historians, we have the family band all over the place and there's girls in it, right? So, so we have yeah. a mom and a dad. Even if the dad passes away later, it's still covered under the rules. So the dad yeah, being in charge, it's somehow breaks the rules that women aren't allowed to walk around all independent like right so <laughs> so we have the family band and this is a big deal we have this oliver vaudeville and so i think that the family band where you're going to try to make you know just from just from the kids you have you have girls playing these instruments in the family band and one of our things we know from our history is that a lot of our early brass soloists men and women st learned it because they had it in the family their dad played mm -hmm. right or or they they had the instruments at home they they grew up playing instruments and so i think this happened with our girls too uh, my research in the world war ii U united states coast guard spar band those women that served in world war ii in the all-women spar band. Of course, it's a, it's a concert band. They had brass and winds. The brass players all learned, a lot of them at school, this is 20th century now, of course, but also many of them mm -hmm. had parents that played a brass instrument. So I would mm. speculate that in the 1870s and 80s, for example, this advent of family bands and the beginning of the variety show and the touring, that this really helped get people a little used to the fact that women could play it. It's not that there were no women playing trumpet because there was enough to populate the Boston Fidets Orchestra for 6,000 concerts, yeah. right? They mm -hmm. didn't want to yeah, just yeah. play string things. They wanted brass. So it, so that's why I said it all started with the violin. So once you get all these violinists together, they had some rehearsals and they looked around and they're like, okay, we're done. We need brass. So they're playing like <laughs> yeah. Tchaikovsky and you know, they're trying to play 1812 Overture and stuff. They are. It's like the coolest <laughs> thing. And you wonder, like yeah. it had two trombones listed and then they played like 1812. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Like, hey, you know, so so the the numbers, they were there. And, and then Helen Mae Butler's 40 piece band. Where did they come from? Right. We know that they mm -hmm. knew how to play. And there there are some later recordings of the like the World War Two era bands that some of those women 
were members of the Boston Women's Symphony and then further back the Boston Fidets. And I did a, a um, statistical analysis from my research that showed that, because right, so we have the Boston Fidets were ending and then the Boston Women's Symphony was starting. There's women's symphonies in all over Pittsburgh, Chicago, there's women's symphonies everywhere because of course they can't still play. So by mm. the twenties and thirties, and my research indicated that 75% of the brass section in 1930 was already had been playing with the orchestras previously. Yeah. So they, they they continued on the whole time. And of course, there's all those women that could then be helping the next generations learn. Girls schools is another source, right? You had a band in girls schools. So you're, you're going to learn there. And, and in schools of color, like the historically black colleges, there may not be a large, large number of students who have girls and boys playing in the bands there. So that's like going back to the yearbooks. So I think we look at it and we're puzzled, like, you know, how could they learn it? But remember, society's learning brass instruments all the whole time around outside of the educational system. So, so right. I think we can yeah, assume yeah. that 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 was functioning for us. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Do you have a particular favorite, maybe family band from your research? Oh my gosh, totally do. So, so the family band thing, like I said, it breaks those rules. It, it allows a departure from gender roles that, that we love. And so there is something called the Dungill Family Concert Company. And the Dungills, mom and dad Dungill, they, and I, you can go back, like I've gone back into the census. I did a presentation at the IWBC on this and I've gone back into the census and I can see they started out in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Go, Kalamazoo, <laughs> right? So, so Doyle Dungill is the father and they were, he and his wife were a variety show players. They were vaudevillians and they toured on vaudeville and they started having children. And then they ended up moving to Chicago. And so then during the 20s and 30s, they're having their children and they're kind of, you know, kind of settling down. And then they have a daughter, Gloria, who plays the tuba. Yay, Gloria. So um, I've talked about her in the in the Women's Brass and she we, we've got some information in my dissertation about her. So Gloria played the tuba and she had, I, I don't know, I think there were maybe six, five or six brothers and sisters. And so there's a there's a dance band. They kept going. That's one of the great things about that family story is the longevity. They they started out in vaudeville and then they kept going and they were able to transition into the, the 40s. They're in a dance band format and, and she's playing her tuba. So, you know, tuba, mm -hmm. trombone, percussion, you, you have the piano and the voice. And then later they actually transitioned to like a doo-wop singing group. You know, they, they huh. went in late. So they actually made records, the Dungill sisters. They, so oh. they, they, they did a, it's a wonderful music business example of transitioning the genre when swing bands were kind of maybe not, not as much yeah, of a thing. Yeah. Doo-wop was the new and making mm -hmm. records. So I actually have one of their, their 45s from the Dungill sisters that I found on nice. eBay. Yeah. So it's super nice. neat. So the, this, cool. and they were African-American. So this family really is representing this diverse culture and history and really should be showcased and, you know, and that's another thing. And let's be careful how we talk about it, because, you know, when somebody says to you, you, you didn't do this at all because you're aware because you're band historians. But sometimes I'll, I'll have an interview and somebody will say, you know, you're one of the first women to play tuba and blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> when we say those things, that's not actually true. Right. So that's part of that you yeah, know, setting yeah. up. Let's reset the hierarchy. So I'm just one of a long line of women playing. And interestingly, Gloria and the Dungill sisters grew up in Chicago um, in like within a few blocks of where Michelle Obama grew up. So this mm. oh, cool. area in Chicago. Yeah. So, so yeah. cool connections there. So the family nice, band, right. the awesome. other, another piece that we would mention with the talk about gender roles is that, that the geographic area also has a lot to do with it because out mm. West and let's pause and say 
that we're not going to romanticize westward expansion. When the white settlers went into the West, this is not this sort of pioneer spirit that we sometimes hear about. This was murder and destruction. And we don't want to downplay the effect on the indigenous populations. When we talk about um, the westward expansion by by Euro European rooted whites, we don't want to talk about that as like a positive, wonderful thing. It had good points, but it also has a lot that we need to unpack. And part of that story is the native um, resilience, the people being able to live through our indigenous cultures, being able to live through and survive and continue to change and you know, develop and evolve their art making in the face of all of that. That's part of the story that we want to always talk about. So whenever we talk about this, this kind of covered wagon thing, right? This image we have, if we were trained in that white European mindset that, that Western expansion was wonderful, let's reset that. So I do want to say that first. Mm -hmm. However, when we're looking at the, the settlement of the West by the Europeans, one of the wonderful things about that is there aren't enough people who play brass instruments to exclude the girls. It's like Joanna learning the tuba <laughs> up in Vermont. So, so we go out and so we see family bands as an exception, like I said, and we also see that the farther West you go, <laughs> The more likely there are to be women in your band. They're just worth the go. numbers, right? So we see women's yeah. bands like in Kansas. And one of my colleagues, I've written chapters now for three books with a wonderful woman called Jill Sullivan, Dr. Jill Sullivan. She is a clarinetist and a music educator. And she's on the faculty at Arizona State. And she's a music education faculty there. And she supervises dissertations. And she's done some wonderful work on women's band research. And mm -hmm. in the three books that I've been able to contribute to her, they're on my website, the links to them, they are all have to do with this story. And she has re really documented well some of our Western area bands that, that had women. And so it's neat to think that, you know, it, it might be harder in the city of Philadelphia to get a, a you know, a gender, you know, mixed gender band because you got enough men there. But, mm -hmm. you know, in, you know, Topeka, Kansas in 1875, maybe not. So so it's it's neat to think that there are some things in some areas, right? We can look at that when we talk about women's suffrage, you know, where women got the right to vote first is often interesting to look at. So hmm. we do have places that we can celebrate for being already more diverse. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. That's not that's not even something that I, uh, you know, piece together that it makes a lot of sense, but it's really interesting to hear the the geography element of it, for sure. Right. Yeah, I guess when you need people, you, you bend the rules a little bit, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know, as not great as that kind of. Uh, yeah, attitude and, is but and that's one of those things I'll just say briefly now because part of my passion is involved in sharing the story of World War II and the women's military bands and and that need outweighed these old stereotypes one of the most important things to happen in the 20th century was the changes in the culture that were necessitated by the Americans' involvement into World War II. So if you think of the 20th century as a block, this like chunk, 100-year chunk, World War II is kind of in the middle, right? Early 1940s. Mm -hmm. And the, the women who in all aspects of society and people of color, the role for women and people of color completely was altered because of the necessity for all hands on deck. Mm -hmm. And what happened during World War II was amazing. We had national daycare instituted. We had people of color going into the military at higher numbers. The military was open to people of color. It was segregated, but it was open, not in all the job settings, but it got there. And women were allowed to serve. Bands were formed of both Minority bands like the Navy B-1 band, which was an all band of color. The Army WAC 404th was all women of color. These amazing contributions were allowed to be made because it was an emergency. 
Hmm. And you open that up. And after you do that, you can't put the lid back on that box. It's forever right. changed. So we have this wonderful occurrence. <laughs> we have the civil rights movement. We have the, the women's movement come out and the soldiers that went across and served with such distinction and Tuskegee and the whole thing. And they come back and the society was like, okay, now we're back to this thing again. No, it didn't. It couldn't ever go back. So that was one of the most important parts to this story is that when society gets to that emergency, we need it too, but we only have Joanna. Okay, fine. Right. So that's going to forever change people's perceptions. And the wonderful thing about this story of like, how do we, where do we go from here? Is this that it's a little tough. People didn't want to do it. You know, the women in the military thing almost didn't pass. Like it was a, a Senate vote and it, it was only a few votes that almost didn't happen that women were even allowed in the military. And the fact mm -hmm. that it was, people didn't want it. People didn't want, like I just finished reading Alex Haley's biography. Mm -hmm. Alex Haley was a man of color. He was a member of the Coast Guard. I'm very proud of Alex Haley. He served in World War II and the only job in the United States Coast Guard open to black men was in the kitchen. Hmm. And he went into the kitchen, but he was a writer. And the, so he petitioned and was able to work his way up in the military to be a media specialist and, and you know, a, a marketing oh. officer because mm -hmm. he, that was his skill. And so people like Alex Haley broke those barriers. Olivia Hooker is another one who was an amazing black woman who broke the barriers in the United States Coast Guard for women of color. And it was because of the emergency. It was because <laughs> you threw out the rules for a second. So let's go throw out some more rules, shall we? Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's, it's unfortunate <laughs> that it takes a world war for some of those I rules know. to be broken. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, we're we're filming this at such an amazing time. We we keep trying to put the lid back on that box, but let's not. Let's just say, you yeah, know what? That yeah. box wasn't big enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. man. It's been a, been a crazy week for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's very, it's yeah. very good that we, we have a chance to share, you know, the, the spaces that we control are our power, right? You host a podcast and our listeners, you all have spaces. I have a classroom. I have a tuba lesson classroom. I have, maybe it's just a seventh grader with, you know, <laughs> with their little euphonium with the bell front, you know, like, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe she, she, that's my classroom. You know, what rooms do you have? What spaces do you have? Do you write a blog? Do you have a website? Do you have a Facebook? You know, you guys run a podcast. Where are our spaces? We're in control of those. We toss around these words like inclusion. And that means that in the spaces that we run, we don't just say people are welcome. We actually, with our full hearts, make them welcome. And we believe that to be true, that we all belong in these spaces. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's remember that, you know, these conversations as a nation that we're having, it's, it's because not everybody's welcome in the spaces. And I, I, I want to create a space where that's different. And you can too. This this conversation, you know, okay, don't worry, you guys, this podcast in the next week is gonna go back to, you know, <laughs> some specifics about valves on the trumpet that I yeah. wouldn't really comprehend. <laughs> and all kinds of talk about, you know, the brass alloys and all of that. You know, we will go back to that next time. But it's neat to just take a second and talk about our spaces. That's one of the things I love about you all in this podcast is that we're really embracing brass and band history and the activity that we love so much. And I can't wait to get back to band and sit in the back row and be bored to death with the and like, oh my gosh right what wouldn't we give i love that i'm a tuba player for heaven's sake so but we can also you know, sometimes people say well i'm just teaching tuba you know i i don't it's not my black lives matter isn't my responsibility i'm just in the tuba studio no it's mm -hmm. all of our responsibility to share these stories and definitely. to make the spaces inclusive look around what can you do mm -hmm. definitely right <laughs> 
other things that we didn't mention yet is diversifying their repertoire. So mm-hmm. as band players and as brass soloists, there is an amount of repertoire of people of color. For example, the Coast Guard Band, the United States Coast Guard Band, my former band has a video on their YouTube channel of Helen Mae Butler's band, Cosmopolitan America, her, her march that she wrote. So she was a composer. So she's got, so, so in other words, we're, we're trying to diversify the way we speak about history, right? And the bands and the instruments, and we're trying to show that there's lots of wonderful history from all in this field. And there is repertoire composed by women and composed by people of color. And there's also things that we can arrange. There are people composing for band right now uh, who are represent a diverse group. And so one of the things that I've really tried to do for my Tubiphonium Ensemble and in my solo albums, my first solo album is all music by women women of color and women for a quartet and solo for the tuba because I was like you know if you can do it for the tuba come on people right we can, we can do it <laughs> you know, you can, if you can find music to play for tuba euphonium quartet by a woman of color then you know it's not that hard so so one of the things that that we can can celebrate too is there's a lot of great music now we're really recognizing our composers we're getting, one of the things that you all could do is try to support a commission there's just joel collier has just written a wonderful new piece for euphonium and piano i was part of that commission and he just recorded it and put it on his youtube and it's it's a, supposed to be it's a gorgeous three movement piece but it's supposed to be at a student level like an undergraduate level and i was part of that commission and it's so beautiful nice. and so that's an example of a new addition to the rep fresh music music, new music that supports mm-hmm. the contributions of all. And from the band side, you can you can go and find original works, but you can also do arranging. I just worked on one of my, we have these pandemic projects, right? One of my pandemic projects was I I took some hymns. There was a wonderful composer of hymns, Charles Albert Tindley. He was an African-American minister in Philadelphia, and he wrote a whole bunch of hymns and sermons. So he would write the sermon and the hymns. Isn't that cool? And oh, he had oh, this yeah. beautiful congregation that was huge, 10,000 person congregation. They had to have like a bunch of services because they could only fit like 3,000 at a time. And this wow. is massive. So he wrote some hymns and they're all in the public domain now. So I have a brass quintet arrangement that I just finished. That's a set of four hymns, two by Charles Albert Tindley and two by other women hymns writers. So I'm not a super religious person. So I wasn't very aware. I couldn't have given you the names of women and people of color that wrote hymns, but I did some Mm -hmm. research. I I can use Google. (laughs) So so I'm really proud that I've just done. So I have a version for Tubi Euphonium Ensemble for quartet, brass quartet and brass quintet that now we can say, you know, oh, you know, I want to play something at my church service in Christmas with my brass quintet. That's a little more diverse that, that showcases the contributions of all. And so, you know, you can do what I did, go get the hymn, Take, you know, download the JPEG from 1901 and then right. go for it. You know, it's it's kind of neat to think that yeah, know, yeah, we can yeah. also diversify not just our ideas, but what we actually play on the horns. And these hymns are gorgeous. One is called Overcome, and it was one of the sources for the civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome. Oh. So, you know, you've got that available now for brass quintet and, and the concert band settings are the same. So go listen to the Coast Guard Band on YouTube playing the Cosmopolitan America March by Helen May Butler. She's a great role model for that. She was playing her own marches out on that's wonderful yeah yeah that's incredible that that was a, a question that i had kind of just as a follow-up was these uh these women bands at the the turn of the century were they primarily playing uh in-house arrangements or were they kind of playing what was already available they were playing the normal stuff like right you the concert programs that you would expect it would have they did try to match they didn't want remember you're already so different they weren't gonna just like change the world of rep too. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, you can imagine the conversation because they actually, not only did they play about the same rep, like if you took the name off a program, it would look like a Sousa program. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. So of course, you have women soloists instead of the priors and stuff. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things that's neat is that that you do really have this attention to costume. It's kind of fun to look back. And so Helen May Butler when you see her in photos, the band had military type of costumes. They're really kind of trying to to get in on that act, right? The public loves a uniform, yeah, right? Yeah, Especially yeah. in vaudeville. So I know that Helen May Butler wrote her march and it was played at the World's Fair and it was played at the White House and for the presidential campaign. And so it was very popular. So I would expect that other um, places must have taken up her march, but they didn't you don't see a ton of compositions by women. I think at that time, we're really not sure there were any, like if you're talking about 1910, mm. um, the, the people then wouldn't have known. There are some. So w- what we see is more they're just playing the standard rep of the time, maybe not wanting to rock the boat in all areas, but just the one, <laughs> just the one of personnel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so now, yeah, though, we can sense. see you know, that the next step would be, so the Athena Brass Band, for example, so to switch to a modern day, one of the roles that we have is to showcase new music. So like we've been playing Dorothy Gates and Lucy Pankhurst and, and the, the music of brass band, the, the contributions for uh, for brass band by women composers that are more current and living are so amazing. And you got to go check out some of that rep. And then commissions, like I said, I, I think many composers, they don't, don't, a commission doesn't have to cost $10,000 or $50,000. Like <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of people you could get together in a group and, and, and you can, can, can save up and, and, you know, work, work with grants and, and universities. And we can be sponsoring commissions by people that we'd like to see, like somebody who hasn't written a brass band work or, or especially choose something that's not a competition piece. We do have a, a good mm-hmm. amount of competition level pieces, but my brass band at UNCP, if I were to start one, we wouldn't be able to start with that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we would need we would need something like my Charles Tindley hymn. We would need something nice and basic to start with. Yeah. Side note, my university, UNC Pembroke, as I said, it was it started out as a Native American normal school. At the turn of the 20th century, they had a brass band. Oh. Yeah. So wow. that's another one of my on my list of someday I have to write about dot dot dot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. like when you're researching brass band in rural North Carolina, there's a ton of brass bands in rural North Carolina. And that would have been an you know, all indigenous, that would have been all native. So it, it's a really wonderful history that in, in addition to the cultural music makings of the indigenous groups that continued unabated through time, there were also the Western music makings that they were contributing to as well. And the brass band at, at UNC Pembroke, what is today called UNC Pembroke is, is a really a wonderful part of our history. And so there was a newspaper article about it that I found, and they were so excited to hear this group of, it was all, all um, young boys. They listed the name of every player so i had the name and the instrument of every player in that newspaper article nice that's awesome it was really cool because next to it was a an article about how everyone was dying of typhoid (laughs) (laughs) not in the brass band luckily but like just in the town like so the newspaper was reporting on typhoid and these wonderful young brass band players in the same issue (laughs) and it's neat that it you know it's 100 years ago or more so it said this pandemic has relevance today yeah, there you yeah. go. Yes, a, yes. a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. You know, right, you got to right. you got to even out the page. Right? So you know, that's right. another example. If you were looking to do some reporting on on um, people of color in the brass band world, we have so much. There's that newspaper article that I found. You know, right in Pembroke, North Carolina. That it's just so neat. To, you just have to uncover it. You have to decide it's important to uncover, and then go mm-hmm. uncover it and share it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. People listen to us speak and they might, you know, like we've, we've kind of joked and said, you know, I thought I was listening to a brass band podcast. And, you know, this this is so on our minds in our nation right now. I just did four 
school clinics this week with students in Calgary, Canada. <laughs> I, I, I signed on via Zoom and I talked to hundreds of, of high school band students who are all doing virtual and they can't play their instruments, so they are doing guests, right? So I, I talked about women's bands in World War II and, and you know, here I am. I was like, well, you know, it's been an exciting time in the U.S. because this, <laughs> this week has been the one where we had the Georgia elections finally and, and we had the, the Capitol mob. And so these Canadian students are saying things like, you know, how, how can this material you're presenting that's 80 years ago, how can this, you know, help? us today and I've got my answer ready for that one. <laughs> Pretty easy to see how learning about pro protest and and asking for change in the past can help us because we're seeing that the protest um, in one setting is is not allowed and, and mob and rioting in another setting is completely allowed. And yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. We're having a national conversation about what we think of protest as meaning and that's a wonderful mm -hmm. thing. It really makes us be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. And, and to the point that you know, listeners might be asking, I, I thought this was a brass band podcast. We're, we're at episode 33 or 34 now, you know, we're, yeah, we're over, we're over the 30 mark. And, you know, the conversations that we've been having today, uh, conversations in two or three previous episodes as well, you know, kind of take a step back and look at larger picture things and, and, uh, you know, gets away from talking about valves and and <laughs> and, and that kind of thing. And, and the the reason why we think that's important, obviously, you know, just kind of saying it out loud, is, uh, you know, having hobbies, research interests, uh, involvement in the early American brass band field and community in the 21st century. You know, oh and, gosh, and, yes. and 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 seeing it as going forward. You know, something that we want to grow, not not only be relegated to textbooks that they're already not included in or, or museums. I love, yeah. I love the way you said that. Like, I love that because if you looked at my career and you might think, okay, she's a college professor and a tuba player and she's done all of this, but I gave you an image today of me like in the scrapbook room at the Boston Public <laughs> Library, like looking at programs from the 1870s and the violin recitals at Boston Conservatory and you know the, the orchestra and uh, concert clippings and photos from the 19th century band and orchestra and vaudevillian movements. You know, they've shaped who I am today and and it's so wonderful to look back and dive back into that history. And it does ask a lot of questions. And this mm -hmm. this podcast, I love that. It's really, let's, let's ask and answer some of those questions. Yeah, right. definitely. Because if people want to play the music or even just listen to the music, uh, play the instruments, you know, all, all these kinds of things, these are topics that unfortunately, you know, have been swept under the rug and ignored even more so than, you know, just the American brass band movement in general. So in, in order for the 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 growth and the the further acceptance and and conversation to happen That's about right. all these topics you know everything needs to have the spotlight shined on it and uh yeah we're we're excited that you know we have our regular listeners you know we've we've reached some good milestones lately in terms of listenership and stuff but we're excited that this exists online in a way that people you know Oh, I might be freezing again. Sorry, but I'm <laughs> that you can you can you can go back, you know, and and it's a resource, you know, for people, you know, years from now they can go back and oh, here's an episode of a a brass band podcast, but they're talking about you know X and Y and you exactly, know. and it brings you it brings you a free resource that you can share. I have a podcast page on my website of all the podcasts when in yours will go up too. that people can go and they, they can hear different things. Cause I didn't talk about anything today that might be on some of those other podcasts. And it's a resource we can share with people who have limited means and, and who, you know, don't have resources that, that 
they have to buy. So I think this is just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much. And and Stephen in a vacuum, and it's yeah, important exactly. to have all the context yeah, right. and all the voices represented for sure. This has been fantastic, and um, yeah, we hope to stay in touch and and you know further these conversations. You know, as we go through the next weeks months years and so on but um where where can people go where's a good spot to point people to if they're interested in any of the of the research that you've um highlighted or any of the organizations you're involved with any of that kind yes of stuff. We, we didn't talk about the historic brass society today yet too but that, that can be another one um so the historic brass society the international women's brass conference my website we can put links to those in the show notes and mm -hmm. my new publications this charles albert tindley brass music i'm so excited about that it's beautiful hymn writing that the the way it sounds it's it's like it's so joyful on the ear these hymns from the turn of the century so i'm I'm so excited about those hymns. And when yeah. I get to go play live, I'm excited to do that again. So, you know, my, my <laughs> website has the bookshelf. So you can go and read what I'm, what I'm reading and what, I, what I'm loving about um, educating my, myself about people's stories and storytelling, as well as my publications, my arrangements of, of music by people of color for brass and women. So, yeah, so we'll put some of those links in the show notes for you. Definitely. All. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hersey. We're incredibly honored and excited to have you on today and to, to share your experiences. We're excited to have developed this relationship and, and to have you as a, an ally and a colleague in the field. And, and we look forward to talking and working together again in the future. <laughs> thank you so much, you both. It was a great chat. Thank you again so much to Dr. Hersey for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. It's really awesome getting to hear your, your passion for uh, all the topics we just talked about. It, it would be difficult to, to go list by list of everything we got to talk about, uh, but equal passion for all of them. And it was awesome getting to, to finally talk to her and to have some of these conversations. Definitely. And uh, if you were following along at home and taking frantic notes, uh, no need. We have show notes. <laughs> so <laughs> you can head over to our website uh, for links to everything that we talked about uh, and kind of a, an episode structure if you want to go back and listen to a certain part of the conversation. Uh, so that's up there on our website. Um, like we said, up top in the episode, you can uh, support us on Patreon and Teespring. We're on all social media platforms as well as YouTube. Uh, so you can find all of our stuff there. Our featured album uh, for this episode is one of uh, Dr. Hersey's albums, one of her earlier solo albums, O Quam Mirabilis. I apologize if I butchered that, <laughs> um, but we'll have links to where you can purchase that, uh, stream it, and all that stuff up on our website. Um, this is a great album, um, and Dr. Hersey writes about it, uh, that the composers whose work she has arranged and performed on the recording represent the rich, vibrant history of women in the field of music composition. So we thought it was a perfect album to pair uh, with this episode. It has a bunch of songs on it. Uh, Hildegard von Bingen uh, songs, Natalie Boulanger, uh, Schumann, uh, and a uh, song by Libby Larson, her concert piece for tuba and concerto, which is uh, one of the newer uh, works for the tuba by a women composer. So it's great playing, uh, the album sounds great, and it's a lot of uh, diverse repertoire that hopefully, uh, if you're any tuba players out there, you can pick up for yourself uh, or just enjoy listening to. So. Uh, we will have links to that up on our website. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Early American Brass Band Podcast, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>